and I went to a village fete. You know about village fetes? Yeah, yeah I think, you know yeah. I went with Ivan, and the group that was on the fete, one of them, or a few of them rather, were friends of Ivan's, and that was John and a couple of his mates. And they were in a little group then, playing... Rather a large group, Paul, there's about 14 <laughs> well, of us, I think. Little in stature, Little in name, I'd say, Paul, but rather... Rather gross. Large, large by number, yes. Large by number. We had banjos, things like that. Washboards, and skiffle boots, the whole lot. It was a skiffle group, you see, which I don't know whether you know about those over here, but they're sort of folk groups. And uh, they used to play American folk songs and things and Liverpool folk songs. And he knew somebody that I knew and they introduced us and he knew the words to one of the songs that I didn't know. I said, do you want to join the group? And he did. And then George came about a year later, you know. I joined the group. And then George joined because I knew George from school. And, uh, you know, we, we've known each other quite a long time now. Welcome to this week's When They Was Fab. This is the start of the next era. No, we're not bringing Dave Persales back, but we are bringing everybody else back. Welcome to the show, our whole series of co-hosts. First off, the man you've been listening to for the last couple of years, John Stone. Hello. Second, the man before that, and to that reviewer on Apple Podcasts, I guess you're not listening anymore because you said you weren't going to listen since he left. <laughs> he is back. Mr. Lonnie Pena. Got to get back to where I once belong, right? <laughs> There's one. <laughs> All right. And third, one of my co-hosts from Toppermost of the Poppermost, the man on the other side of the pond, well, at least from the rest of us, Mr. Martin Marv Quibell. Hey, how's everyone doing? A roar. Yay! Yay! Yay. The band plays on. <laughs> Man, that's a different group. We're all just kind of figuring out what's going on. Now, I should point out, we don't know what the schedule is going to be. Most weeks you'll hear me and one of these fine gentlemen, possibly more than one sometimes, but at least one of these fine gentlemen on any given week. But they don't know when they're talking or when they're going to talk. They're going to have to figure it out and tell me. Be a roll of the dice, Ed. <laughs> right. As long as you give me a week beforehand so I know who to complain to. <laughs> Occasionally you might get a double six. <laughs> no snake <laughs> I did not go to the casino. The Ringo Starr, his current tour, Ringo is going to the casino at the end of the tour. Well, that's good scheduling. That is. Yeah. He's made all that money. He's got to spend it. Right. That is the closest he's coming to us. And, well, poor Martin has to cross the pond in order to see Ringo. I've got the dinghy ready. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to Vegas, is what you're saying? No, uh, he's going to a casino in Thackerville, Oklahoma. I was going to say, probably in Oklahoma. That's not a bad drive, right? That's only... Yeah, six hours. I mean, (laughs) if you're going gambling, that might not be too bad, but it's still a pretty long drive. Yeah. If the buffet is good. Well, I mean, I offered John if he wanted to go, we could go, but... We can drop by and pick John up and then head north. That's true. I'm on the way to Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) they might serve toast but are there beans on it that'd be a good trip you can look into that for us Lonnie however I did just see Ringo this past weekend oh really where at Ed 
at the Masonic Theater in San Francisco, California. Oh, that crumbling wow. city on the Pacific coast. <laughs> it hasn't fallen into the ocean just yet. <laughs> I just wouldn't read like a month's worth of articles on how San Francisco is just kind of completely collapsing. The theater is at the top of Knob Hill, if you're familiar with the San Francisco Bay Area. So so I got to walk up and down Knob Hill on three separate occasions. All right. That is a good walk, folks. I did a year in San Francisco, and uh, I think it's a 45-degree angle pretty much everywhere. According to my Apple Watch, I got 47 flights of stairs in by going up and down the hill three times. I believe that. Sometimes you think, why did they put a town here? Because there was gold in the the Dar Hill? Well, that explains everything. There's gold. And it's always 72 degrees year-round. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone is just thrilled to hear about that. But, uh, yeah, basically I got off the plane and it was cold. Went to a game wow. at Oracle Park and Mark Twain is right. The coldest winter he's ever lived through was the summer in San Francisco. So talking about the Ringo show, Ringo is still putting on a good show. The current band, other than Ringo, he's got a couple of returning fellows. Steve Lukather from Toto and... Colin Hay from Minute Work, and Greg Bissonette, his second drummer all the time. Right. Did I see Hamish in there as well? The other players, Hamish, who had joined, I guess, a couple years back, Edgar Winter and Warren Ham from Kansas. The two guys other than Ringo that impressed me the most were Edgar Winter and Warren Ham. Although Hamish is no slouch. Who was on keyboard? Edgar Winter was on keyboards. He was, okay. He did keyboards. He did synths. He very much had fun pulling out one of those really big synths that you wear around your neck. Everybody's still having a real good time so far. Sounds pretty good. But as most of you all may know, I started out originally playing piano and organ. And uh, at a certain point, I just got really frustrated being stuck behind this big bank of keyboards. Nobody can see what you're doing. Chained to one spot. And I said, I want to get out there and boogie. So I just happened to be, with the advent of the synthesizer, the first guy to get the idea of putting a strap on the keyboard, making me the first person in musical history to do this. Are you ready for the monster? like a good show and he made some albino jokes my, my question is most of the people in the all-stars have hits that they play you can guess most of them. what did hamish play as his hit 1976 <laughs> who remembers 1976 yeah come on must be more than that yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was it like uh, <laughs> I knew it was like this. Cut the cake.
from the average white band. Interesting. Hamish actually played three separate songs. Yeah, pick up the pieces. Yep. Yep. Pick up was a hit back in the mid seventies. What was the third song that Hamish played? I'm taking care of business. Woman, can't you see? I gotta make it for you. I gotta make it for me. Though sometimes it might seem I'm neglecting you. I'd love to spend more time, but I got so many things to do. They're borderline hits, but they are still top 10 hits. Right. And now it sounds like we're talking in toppermost language. <laughs> yes, it does. Where's Kit when we need her? <laughs> Kit would definitely agree with me about the horn battle. Warren Ham and Edgar Winter doing dual saxes. That was a lot of fun. Wow. Oh, I bet it was. Frankenstein is their tour de force. <laughs> and, well, Ringo wasn't playing during that song. He was off stage, right? He always takes a couple of songs off in the middle. Okay, he will be back. Did Edgar play that long keyboard synth? He pulls it out and hangs it around his neck, and it's full 88-key yeah. synth. That's crazy. <laughs> I don't think I could lift that thing. You look at the picks. It basically runs a couple feet either side of his body. <laughs> He's been doing that for years. But, yeah, a Frankenstein... That was also just a whole lot of fun. And that turned into a drum battle between him and Greg Bissonette. The musician thing where you just go between a dozen different songs, but this is just on the drums. Changing beats. Between Greg Bissonette and Edgar Winter. All right, cool. Edgar Winter brought out, uh, I guess it was four or five snare drums that they just put around him, and, and they went and they had their little drum battle. Greg Bissonette playing on the full kit. Any excuse for a jam session, right? You're one of those musicians. You uh-huh. know that that's that's how you fill time. Is you start a song and then you just play a handful of bars of any other song you can remember, and then you come back to the original song to end it. That usually happens in the rehearsal, in the practice, right, John? Right. (laughs) They've worked it out for the set. 
it was very nice. Sweet. How long was the show? A couple hours? A little over two hours. Was it a full house? 95% filled, I would say. Ringo has peaked. That's kind of a joke. I think of the 66 tour. It's like, well, the stadium wasn't packed, so the Beatles have peaked. It's like, well, Ringo's 83. He's peaked. Well, except in this case, it's more packed than it's been in recent years, I think. What's the capacity of that venue there? Probably about 5,000. Okay. It's relatively small. Maybe slightly smaller than the Smart Financial Center that we saw in. A nice size house. It's not... Bigger than any venue I've played. Not John, though. John has played larger venues. Yes. Possibly. John's a superstar. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's right, you are. (laughs) (laughs) Move on, Ed. Move on. On to the next round. Paul has been out there. His book is actually now out everywhere. It's not just out at Barnes & Noble. Just before we started recording, I got my copy. Nice. Timing is everything. I'm going to wait about a month. And see if you can get it a little bit cheaper. I may may wait six months. (laughs) I would expect that if you wait till... Black Friday and Christmas type sales, the $60 price tag will be down at least 40 or under is, is my guess. So I just got a quick chance to look through the book. It is confirmed that everything I've seen, Paul actually was really pretty good at taking pictures. And it's not just Beatle pictures. There's you know lots of the associated people that were around. There's a nice portrait of Judy. Does every page have a picture? Pretty much. There's like 300 photos in this thing. Wow. One that I saw that I thought was really interesting was it looked like, you know, the iconic photo where they're in the doorway uh, of the theater. With that blue background, that London Palladium poster. Exactly. It looks like Paul took a picture of John and George standing in that doorway, and so was he. It was like they were taking that picture, and he turned around and took a picture of them. That's what it looks like. Once I get through the rest of the book, I will let you know. Okay. No, are so, they all black and white photos? As I mentioned to John, it is black and white until they get to Miami. Then Paul pulled out the color roll. We got a series of color photos, and they're all in Miami. It's kind of like the transition from 1964 to 1965. He could have waited until Peter Jackson made them all color. <laughs> <laughs> but does he not go back to black and white after that? There are some black and white photos on the other side of it, yes. Okay. And how many years does it extend? It goes from December of 63 through Miami, through the end of Miami. Oh, okay. I thought it would be... Photos from five cities. Okay. And he may have some photos from the other side, but this is what they identified and this is what they put in the book. Okay. So nothing from 66 then. It says 64 on the title, Lonnie. Okay. And it's not even all of 64. It is the period that a lot of people are going to be really very, very interested in. It looks like it's going to be a series of books. I'm holding out for 66. That's the year that I want. I think we'll get another book in two years. He has to do something if he's not going to tour, but that's a whole different story. He's also doing his show at the National Gallery where they are displaying the highlights of this photo set. And he's doing press associated with that. And that would be in London? That would be in London. Uh, well, although he is doing a, a show in New York okay. uh, with Conan O'Brien. How long is it on for the exhibition for in London? Do you know? Months. That's good. It's a little while, but it's not like a big, huge, long thing. It's not like a six-month thing or a year-long thing. Possible field trip for me there. You will have to report back if you get to go and see it. He did an interview on the BBC yesterday from our perspectives, but that's just a short little thing. That's about 10 minutes. We were like on an upwards ramp going to London, Paris, New York, Washington, Miami. It's just great memories for me. And why are you sharing them with the world now? Because I just discovered them. But, you know, there's pictures I took in the 60s. I didn't realize how many there were. Loads of them. And there are also a book which is called Eyes of the Storm. Yeah. Tell me about the title. Well, the four of us were like the eyes looking out at the storm. And then you had the cameramen who were eyes looking in on us. And then there was the audience, or the fans. So everywhere you went, there was eyes in the storm, you know, so that's how the title came about. He is going to do roughly a full hour with Stanley Tucci. 
Wow. That I believe is going to be streamed. And then he is going to do the Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend podcast. So he and Conan will hang out for an hour or more. Okay. And now, is that a video podcast? I believe they do actually have a video okay. version of it. This, just, this is fantastic. Uh, as you know, this is a podcast. Listen to billions of people all around the world. <laughs> Don't laugh at that. That's just me. <laughs> Hundreds of people around the world. Uh, but uh, we have a little tradition, which if we start out, you introduce yourself. Uh, and I, I think you're familiar with a piece of paper there. And then we're, we're off and running. Hi, my name is Paul McCartney. And I feel wildly elated about being Colin O'Brien's friend. Oh my god. That's it, good night, thank you. That's all I needed. Uh, oh. I need to make a list now. I'm writing everything down. I'm going to get it right. Here. That's right. This is the same Tribeca Film Fest where May Pang debuted her film last year. No comment on that, but they actually are going for the rock stars this time around, I guess, because also as part of this series, David Letterman is interviewing John Mellencamp. Oh, does he have a book out too? He has something out, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. This is not the John Mellencamp podcast. <laughs> Yeah, his is called The Ears of the Storm. <laughs> oh. Never mind. That's not, a, that's not a Beatles joke. That's a Midwest joke. <laughs> well, you could, you could go with nose and we can make it a Ringo joke. Who knows? <laughs> Who cares what the idiots say? See, I can do it too. There you go. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go and you look at the description on Tribeca, Conan O'Brien has this... 12-sentence, multi-paragraph description of who he is. And then under Paul, there's three sentences. <laughs> Paul McCartney was born in Liverpool. He grew up. He's now a famous musician. And that's kind of, you know, that sort of thing. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, keep it short and sweet. Right. So as part of this, Paul has said that we are going to get, quote, unquote, the final Beatles song later this year. Oh, really? What song I would guess it's going to be now and then, but he hasn't confirmed that. That's what the scuttlebutt seems to be everywhere. Every, every time I, I read a reference to this, it's now and then that they seem to reference. I mean, it's the most logical one, and admittedly, someone did find that they filed some copyright notices in England dated February of this year on now and then, so... I think it's probably 95 to 99% now and then, but he didn't come out and say that. That song has been floating around. The three Beatles worked on it as the Threedles during the anthology period. Yeah, that was the third song, right? That was on the tape with Grow Old With Me. The two released ones they did a fair bit of work on. They denoised now and then, but there was a 60 kilocycle hum on the tape. Well, the, the article I read said that um, Girl With Me was on a tape that John intended for Ringo to record and that Now and Then was on a tape that said Songs for Paul. There are a couple versions of that again. I think there must have been two tapes. Audio-wise, we know that John said that he was giving Girl With Me to Ringo. Right. The Now and Then tape, which may also have had a copy, if not that copy of Girl With Me, had a sticky on it for Paul. Did Post-it notes exist in 1980? I think so. I don't remember. <laughs> John, as the elder statesman? I, I, I can't say <laughs> that I have actually registered in my mind when Post-it notes appeared uh, in the collective. but uh, I seem to remember them as coming along a little bit later. Maybe. I remember Rolodex. <laughs> but that's not a Post-it note. And the way I see it described is that, oh, John wrote for Paul on a sticky note and stuck it on the tape. 1977. There okay. you go. Thank you, Martin. So they did did exist. And, well, John was wealthy enough to afford a box of Post-it notes in 1980, I guess. We should look into that to see if, whether Yoko actually ordered them. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> well, wouldn't, it wouldn't have been Yoko. It would have been Fred Seaman, wouldn't it? Well, I guess so, yeah. Well, we can still check with him, right? Sean? 
We want to see the post-it note. <laughs> Release the post-it note. The announcement that came out in regards to this song is that it is, quote, AI enhanced. Now, everyone is going a little bit wild thinking that it's, you know, the current craze of generating vocals wholesale. Everything I've read, that is not the case. Right. This is more separating the vocal and John's demo piano. And the the 60 kilohertz hum, the electrical hum that apparently ran through the whole thing, which is really probably the reason why they abandoned it the first time around. I would think they would have solved that before they even decided to work on it. If they couldn't get rid of the hum, why would Jeff Lynn even bother? That would have not been feasible to to put out something with a hum that ran through it. Well, who said this was an AI? There, uh, it was. Well, it, Paul did. I mean, you know, Paul. Paul, okay. Paul okay. comments that that it was an AI assist which made this happen or allowed this to happen. So that's like really recent. Yeah. Well, I mean, nope. you know, what it really is, is is it's the get back technology. It's the Mal. I would guess Peter Jackson came in and he is the one who really did the assist with isolating John's vocal. I think they've done the same thing as they did with John's vocal for the I've Got a Feeling that Paul's doing now with John live. When they stripped down the duet and just pulled out John's vocal. Yeah. Everyone is going crazy just kind of assuming that they are somehow going to layer a fake John on top of it. I just really don't think that's the case, and I haven't seen anything to indicate they are even looking at that. Although Paul did say that while he's not big on going on the internet, he has heard some of these AI creations where they put John on top of some of my songs. Right. Hopefully they won't do that. I don't think they would. I mean, first of all, I don't think that technology is to the point where Paul would really consider it, uh, certainly at least for purposes of having John sing on one of his songs. I definitely don't like the version of Temporary Secretary that they did put in John's voice on there to replace Paul's. Oh, I haven't heard that. I'm just in March when I say goodbye Would you please make sure she stays on the right track Well, I don't know how hard it is for young girls these days In the face of everything to stay on the right track She could be a belly dancer, I don't need a true romancer She could be a diplomat, but I don't need a girl like that I mean, the only ones that are really, really pretty good uh, are the ones where they kind of de-age him But I mean, that's Paul singing over Paul that sounds actually pretty good. <laughs> That's the only one that I think comes kind of close to the real deal. We've talked about that in, on a number of occasions. He didn't say no to that. Well, he, he also mentions that, I mean, that he realizes that this is kind of the technology of the future and expressed an, an interest in engaging with it. But, you know, I, I think when you end up with versions that are f- completely fake, then then it gets re- very confusing. I mean, do, do these versions end up on serious radio from the Beatles station standpoint? Now we're going to play a version of John singing, You Like Me Too Much. <laughs> yeah. The Beatles have always been kind of conservative when it comes to new technologies, at least certainly post-60s. Right. Once they broke up, they couldn't agree on anything. So, <laughs> Even as solo artists. That's actually what interests me about using Now and Then, because that's a song that George definitely rejected. It's like, no, I, I, we're not doing this. There's a famous story about that, that three or four days in, George says it's rubbish. And then Paul goes, well, you know, it's John. And then George turns around and goes, yeah, maybe John, but it's still effing rubbish. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. The other thing is, George was getting a little bit sick of Paul at that point in time. Is it that he didn't want to work on this song? Is he thought that there was something about this song that wasn't right? Or was it just, I got to get away from Paul right now? At that point, it could have been, I got to get away from Jeff Lynn. I don't know. <laughs> the nice thing is, well, so they are, it probably will genuinely be a Beatles track. There may not be vocals. There may be some vocals that they can rescue from George. But I would be willing to bet there's some guitar that they're going to be able to put on this track from when the Threedles worked on it. Right. Now, is Jeff Lynn going to work on this? I think he mentioned working with Jeff on it, yes. Is that right? Okay. 
I'm surprised it's not Giles that he's working with. The first time he mentioned it was in that doc about Jeff Lynn, Paul, for no real reason at all, just sort of mentioned in the middle of there, oh yeah, there was a song now and then that we were working on, and, and we worked on it in a couple days, and, and Jeff Lynn was producing, and I think someday I'm going to nip into the studio with Jeff and finish it off. Well, maybe that day is t- today, or at least six months ago. There were three that we liked, um, Free as a Bird, Real Love, and so those were the two that we did. And there was another one that we started working on, but George went off it. <sighs> fucking hell, fucking rubbish, this is. It was like, no, George, this is John. It's still fucking rubbish, you know. Oh, okay, then. <laughs> so that one, that one's still lingering around, so I'm going to nick in with Jeff and do it, finish it. One of these days. With the politics of the band, it, it I think, well, what, what does Olivia think? If, if, if she knows that George was not for this, would she give her permission to, to go forward with it? She would have almost have to if they're thinking about releasing it. I can't see Paul and Ringo just railroading everybody else. It's like, we're going to put this out. Yeah, well, that wouldn't happen. That also may lend some credence to my supposition that Georgia just kind of, it wasn't necessarily the song or maybe it was the fact that he didn't think that the quality of John's vocal that they pulled off the tape was good enough to be able to do a record from it. Right. At that you know, maybe, time. maybe he's thinking that's what, what was rubbish. Yeah. But that's never actually been filled out. I can't imagine that they're just going to put this thing out by itself what do we think it's going to be combined with i mean the most logical thing is that we really are going to get a remaster of anthology both audio and video obviously since they're kind of starting the promotion now they're going to make a big deal out of this when they do finally put it out and paul said it's coming this year just in time for christmas folks i'm thinking it could come out probably around christmas and Herald, a a redo of the anthology for the new year. We did get a remaster of the anthology audio for iTunes, but, you know, maybe they're planning a physical release of it as well. Now, you're talking about the audio. Now, the the actual special that appeared has not been streamed. I think those DVDs are still in print, although I don't 100% know. I know they're still purchasable from Amazon. But it's never been on streaming. No, it has never been released on streaming. And that may be the big deal. Maybe it's going to be on mm, Disney. Disney, yeah. Come this Christmas, and they're going to sweeten that deal. Yeah, that's a possibility. They can redo the whole thing. You, you have to watch all seven episodes to unlock the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how else are you going to recreate the countdown? That is something that we all kind of remember. Yeah. Sitting there, uh, well, I mean, Martin, they didn't do that for you guys in England, did they? Do you know? Because here in the States, we got Anthology as three two-hour parts. At the end of the first one, while the closing credits were on, we got a countdown clock. The new Beatles single was coming, and it just rolled all the way down, and then it rolled into the intro of Free as a Bird. You know, I'm going to quote Ringo here and say, oh, I don't know, I was probably too stoned at the time to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was back, Sorry. that was back in your childhood, wasn't it? Early to mid twenties. I'd have been in my early twenties, so that would have been thereabouts. Ninety-five <laughs> is when it was released. Twenty-four-year-old me. I don't know how you can recreate something like that for streaming. And I know I watched every episode when it came out because it came out day by day. There being this anticipation for the last episode, because so yeah, it did, I think we did have it in the UK. Come to think of it, that it did say, "Oh, you're going to get this at the end of the." last episode or whatever it was yeah that's kind of what i think is the most likely place that they're going to stick it although we don't know lots of unanswered questions because it's going to have to be really good i mean they're just not going to put out something that just barely gets by you know here's a crappy old song that john did that george hated and here it is the demo is certainly incomplete it's very much John just throwing around a couple of ideas, although it does make a song. I mean, it's not just a couple of phrases of this and a couple of phrases of that. It It is a whole idea. I think George really liked Free as a Bird because they could contribute to it. 
Paul had his little bridge and George had his bridge. And so they could add something to it. I don't think he was as thrilled with real love because it's all basically John and they could do some little harmonies. I don't know the extent of now and then. I mean, what I've heard of it has kind of a chorus and part of a verse, maybe. And then there's a second verse, which is kind of half a verse. And then he just goes into, you know. So it's something that Paul can contribute to, or maybe has already. It's done. It's done. Okay. <laughs> they finished it. So this is just the first that we are hearing of it. We're talking about AI for Lennon, but what about AI for Paul? <laughs> <laughs> oh, a whole other story, folks. If, if it's going to be the 1978 Lennon, are they going to put uh, right. going to do AI um, London Town era Paul's voice? <laughs> <laughs> It's all age comparable. No. <laughs> De-aged Ringo's drum kit. Well, except the drums sound better as they get older. Yes. It's, yeah, they do. 94 Harrison guitar. You put Ringo and there won't have to be a need for AI because he sounds the same. The nice thing is that George did record something and probably he recorded something usable. So it really will be at least as much as Real Love and Free as a Bird were, it will be a Beatles thing. Okay, well, that would be nice. Hopefully it's something usable. I mean, it, he didn't leave, like, see around the clubs. I don't think they'd even finish Real Love at that point in time. I think it was just, let's quit for a bit, we'll finish Real Love, and then we'll be done. With maybe we'll come back to this, but they never did. Yeah. There are at least a day's worth of George playing, and if you're looking for a pretty good version of it, there's a version from a band called Apple Jam, and I mean, that's what they do, is they bring back and do Beatles versions of all these unreleased songs. That's up on YouTube, and that's been up on YouTube, and I like that a lot. That's done very well. They kind of finish it, but not really, but it serves as a pretty nice guide for what the final version could conceivably sound like. Well, my objection to all this so far has been the thing that made Beatles music so incredible was what they brought to it. And so to just kind of do background vocals that sound like Harrison and McCartney backing up John, let's say, the creative ideas are not the same. What was the song that we were listening to, Ed, that it was like, well, it's okay, it sounds it sounds right. but There's an AI Beatles version of Grow Old With Me where it's John and some of the actual Ringos, and then they have Paul like doing a verse, and some of the effects and things is good, but it's, you know, it's what you were saying. It's, are these the choices that they would have yeah, made? Yeah, the background harmonies were just really standard. You know, it's like, well, anybody would have come up with that. And I don't think the Beatles would have been, yeah, this is what we should do, because that's not what they did. They usually produce something very unique.
I think there's still plenty of mileage which can come out of what they did here, you know, using this Mal technology and isolating John vocals. And while there probably isn't room for more Beatles stuff, Paul isn't saying he's not going to use it again. Right. I was talking to Martin. Maybe what they might want to do or what he might want to do, assuming Yoko and Sean agree with it, is do a John and Paul do a Nurk Twins album. <laughs> you know, it all gets back to Strawberry Fields, Premonition, Nothing is Real. That's the truth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's crazy. That's how it's going to be going forward. N- nothing here is real. We've already heard there's some really interesting things on the Get Back sessions. What if Paul were to pull and isolate some of those things and finish them up and do them either as Beatles things or as John and Paul things? That Bye Bye Love, if there's enough of that or if if he could work his way around that, I would really like to hear a finished version of that. Well, if you can clean it up, but I don't know about putting new vocals on. I'm not talking about new AI vocals from Lennon. I'm talking about, you know, maybe Paul might do some new vocals on top of it. Well, even at that, it's going to be really rough. Yeah, I would think he'd be more interested in doing something new. I mean, are, yeah. are you going to sit and work on, let's do an AI version of Mailman Bring Me No More Blues, <laughs> you know, and, and fix John's crappy <laughs> lead vocal style. Out of all the different versions of all things must pass that the Beatles have done, he, he could always um, do a great version of that, get cutting all the best bits of all the different takes hmm. and do that with some of the songs hmm. and then clean up that afterwards. Right. Or, I mean, you could just pull George out and put him on top of the concert for George version, although that would be a little bit creepy. <laughs> I mean, because that's a great version of all things must pass. Yes. <laughs> Uh, George celebrates his own death. That actually kind of appeals to George, I would think. You know, he's like... (laughs) (laughs) George might just appreciate something like that, yes. He'd probably giggle at that. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Hey, the old suit still fits. We got a couple more minutes. I mean, our our original thought before all the rest of this came out was we were going to talk a bit about fandom. So we got about, you know, 20, 30 minutes so we can... Go on from there. Well, what's your definition of fandom? We're just talking about just normal Beatle fans or those uh, who are obsessed with collecting everything Beatles. It's all that and more. (laughs) At one level, there's just kind of the people who go, oh, I like the band or I like the songs. It's the people who have gotten Here Comes the Sun to a billion streams. They are fans (laughs) at one level. Right. I don't know what kind of collection anyone else has. I know, Ed, you have a really good collection, and you've seen my collection. We're talking magazines, albums, whatever we can find that even has the name Beatles on it. Right. <laughs> a little obsessive. Well, not only you, you and Ed have got loads of like recordings <laughs> of, uh, of, of like from radio shows and interviews and all sorts <laughs> in your archives. It's crazy. Lonnie, admitting your obsession is the first step. Yeah, and I, I'm on step one. Yeah. My name's Lonnie, and I am an obsess. Right. I actually had some guys in today in my house because they were doing some work, and one of the repair folks came into my, what was once a dining room is now a Beatles museum, and he says, oh, you have a store here? <laughs> I've seen that on your videos. That is a great room. It's not a store. It's a museum. Right. <laughs> That is a great space you've got there, Lonnie. <laughs> Can everybody say their introduction to the Beatles was? As people know, I mean, for me, it was red and blue. And that probably holds for a lot of people of the sort of intermediate age, people born between, say, 1965 and 1973 or 74. Red and Blue is probably their first. Was that a CD release for you, Ed, or the vinyl? No, 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 that's vinyl. Vinyl. So did you get it new, or did you get it after it had been out for years? I got both of those at half-price books. That was a good place to get stuff. A significant chunk of my vinyl collection came from Half Rise. Right. This is the best store. There's books, there's records, there's movies, there's everything that I want. It's a great little happening here. I well, love Half Price books. <laughs> I, I was introduced the same way, I think. 
I, I seem to remember my dad having a copy of the Red and Blue when it came out. He bought it when it came out, and and even as a four or five year old, I, I was getting him to play it to death on the turntable. That's cool. I'm old. I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, but I was part of that. But really, it was my older sister who was three years older than I was. She yeah. got all the magazines and. 16s and teen sets and all the the fan magazines and she eventually gave them to me when she moved on to elton john and so i was always part of it but i was totally hooked when the paperback writer single came out and i bought it and then flipped it over after i heard rain that was it i was forever hooked and badly hooked i mean i was obsessive anything i could get or anything i could get out of my parents can you buy this that was where i was at there's no turning back for you then right john oh no as a matter of fact i I can remember my prize at the time was i got the beatles the hunter davies biography when it first came out and we were on vacation and i read the whole book in the back of the car i mean just absorbing it that was really it and and i was aware you know there was a i think a a look magazine that had john and yoko on it and that was the first magazine that kind of really showed lennon's new look in the middle of all the publications for the yellow submarine movie I was scooping all that stuff up. My parents actually gave me their copy of that Look magazine. I don't know why they held on to it, but I think they just held on to the whole stack. Right. And then we were they were throwing stuff out, and it's like, here, you want this. <laughs> right. They probably wanted you to be an obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the 16s and the teen beat. Our friend uh, Allison managed to get her PhD on basically – the reporting in those magazines was like she got the Beatles masters and then uh, she got her PhD specifically on the reportage of the Beatles in teen set, which is largely the KRLA version of that. Right. Well, you know, a lot of those early magazines would have stuff on the Beatles, but then you go through articles of, you know, how to cut your hair like a beetle and what are the Beatles wearing? And that early stuff was Paul married to Jane? All this gossipy kind of win a date with the Beatles. I wonder how many people actually got to date the Beatles. Well, we know that that happened at least on two occasions with George. Right. George did actually go out on a couple of those dates, and we've heard about. That was almost always in England, wasn't it? And probably very early on when Brian was like, this would be a good idea. Get out there, George. You need to date more. I don't know that anything ever happened here. Is this pre Patty? This was pre-Patty. Oh, yeah. and, and then, of course, there was Australia, and we won't talk about what happened to the young ladies and their mothers that won that contest. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. <laughs> we did a whole show on when the Beatles drove us wild. You can go listen to that show. This is true. <laughs> the optimal sentence was, well, they ended up getting beetled that night. <laughs> yeah. It's for the adult group, folks. <laughs> New podcast coming your way. <laughs> Well, my exposure to the Beatles was a little similar to John. We're probably about the same age, maybe two, three years apart, John. Could be. I don't know how old you are, Lonnie. Uh, yeah, you know the Beatles song, When I'm... Ah, yes. I see. So I watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, but I, I didn't get into the record collecting, though, until my parents bought me a turntable when I turned 13 in 1971. Ah, and I didn't get into the Beatles initially, though. I liked the Beatles. I knew about the Beatles, but I was heavy into synthesizers. And speaking of the episodes that you just recently did right. about the Moog and so forth, I was heavy into Yes and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. But a buddy of mine, we all went to a flea market, and he bought a, a used copy of Meet the Beatles. This was in 71, mind you. And I was like, why are you buying a copy of that band? They're like old. <laughs> Meet the Beatles was like a goldie, oldie but goldies, yeah, right? Yeah, it was like seven years old at that point. And he said, well, I broke my older brother's copy, and I'm buying this for my older brother. So I, we went back to my house, my parents' house, and I put it on the turntable. And I swear I got hooked. 
I mean, we went from, yes, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, King's Crimson, to the Beatles, Meet the Beatles. <laughs> Which is a great album. <laughs> and I still have that album. I said, well, can I borrow it? I never gave it back to him. <laughs> Did you like the isolated Here Comes the Sun, the Moog from that? Oh, that's an awesome episode, folks, if y'all get a chance to listen to it. I would say by the time Retro Speedway was released... I want to say that was late spring of 73. Right. I had all the Beatle catalog, all the U.S. catalog by that point, and all the solo Beatle albums that were available at that point. And I never looked back. You went hard and heavy. I was a teenager, and whatever money I made working side jobs, I'd spend it. Of course, back then, you know, 45s were whatever, maybe 50 cents. Albums were like three ninety nine, right? And so most of my collection is U.S. Apple seventy two, seventy three, seventy four, originally. But then I started finding out that they were up. Memorabilia existed, <laughs> <laughs> right? Forget that. I bought everything I could find. I remember buying a Beatles blanket. It was twenty dollars at an antique store here in Houston, and I had to put it on layaway because <laughs> I could only afford $5 a week. Right. And I still have that blanket to this day. But you were cold for those four weeks. <laughs> I was very cold. But he had <laughs> dreams and aspirations. <laughs> that kept him warm. It is an itchy blanket because it's a wool blanket. <laughs> Let's see. Martin's the only one who hasn't told us. So as per usual, talk, Martin, talk. When my parents split up, I ended up <clears throat> acquiring my dad's uh, record collection eventually and built up from there. He has had them back since. I'm sorry, Dad. <laughs> the thing that amazes me, I mean, now it's like, what did George have for lunch on January 2nd? The detail of things that we know now is just mind-blowing. Back then, it just kind of eked out. The Hunter Davies book was just fascinating. It was an adult book about the Beatles and had information that had never come out. And then things started coming out. The next big book that blew me away was The Longest Cocktail Party. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Great book. Richard DeLillo, The Apple House yeah. Hippie. I've read that several times. Yeah, it's still, you know, you can go back and go, oh, you know, because it, it mentions incidents that now we know about. But back then it was like, well, that's weird. Brute force and all that stuff. And so that one just really was a big one for me. And what about uh, the man who gave the Beatles away? Poor old Alan Williams. That was in 70, what, 77? And before that, there was Illustrated Record. And that was a great book. You know, you went through all the singles and really good commentary. And so stuff was kind of leaking out. And then some years later, this guy named Bruce Moody said, there's this book coming out by a guy named Mark Lewison. And that was the recording sessions. And at that point, it was like, wow, this is as much as we could ever know. You didn't get live when live came out? Live was well before recording session. I guess it was like, yeah, there's stuff about their appearances. But the detail of information in the recording sessions was really great for me. There was another book that came out by a fan called Every Little Thing. Uh, was it Joe Pope? All of his little flexi disc. Yep, back in the mid-70s. I mean, that was the first time we ever really got to hear the DECA sessions. Yeah, I have a few of those flexi discs. What do we think about Shout? Shout was revelatory in its own way. I mean, now we know about Philip Norman. It was a good book. It was interesting to read. John, you remember the KBTL radio station in Houston? Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. You know, they had a festival. I was there. <laughs> You remember seeing videos at the festival? I remember kind of a battle of the bands kind of thing. I supplied them with all their videos. Oh, did for that you really? Festival. Yeah, that was that was a, a cool thing. That was at the southwest part of Houston. That's right. <laughs> the actual Beetle Fest was in town. What two years? Eighty two and eighty four, I believe. That sounds right. Yeah, I have an eighty four poster. I'm looking at right now. Really. Yeah. As we have frequently told, Darren Murphy credits that for really getting his start off as a musician. <laughs> he was just kind of playing around with it until he got in and 
as a kid, he sang "Working Class Hero" yeah. for Harry Nilsson. Uh, he he was doing the uh, anti-gun campaign at that point. He had, he had a, a single, which I, I have a copy of. Harry Nilsson, this is not, not Darren. Right. Well, I'm, uh, Darren has lots of singles, but not. Uh, <laughs> And, oh, Susan's not on, obviously, today, but she uh, got a chance to uh, sit down at the piano with Harry Nilsson at that 84 Beatle Fest, and he played an impromptu little two or three songs for a group of folks. Uh, Susan, my ex-wife, who's been on the podcast before. Because he <laughs> lost the second reel of Son of Dracula. <laughs> he was announcing or introducing the copy of Son of Dracula, but they lost the second reel. So halfway through the film, it's like, oh, well, we don't have the rest. And he did an impromptu little and So show. he did an impromptu couple of numbers, yeah. <laughs> Darren was late for the contest, but he knew someone who was working the fest, and they bought him in, and he basically vouched for him to Harry, and then Harry said, well, sing for me, kid. <laughs> it's always who you know. Then he broke into Working Class Hero. Then it's like, okay, you're in. Right. So that was how he got into the Sound of Light contest, and then he won the whole damn thing. I've got a lot of affiliated books with the Beatles. Yeah. Say. Okay. I, I like the Barry Miles book, Paul, Paul McCartney. Many, you know, uh, many years from now, which yeah. is unofficially the the autobiography, really, isn't it? Yeah, that was a really good one because it certainly gave me a view of McCartney that I didn't really have before. The idea that he was kind of brought up in a country atmosphere in a way you know that he, he feels like he's a, a country kid yeah the story about that that kind of fascinates me is the fact that you know he talks about that they were just on the edge of the woods right and they would go off and actually almost kind of go camping him and mike right he went on trips with george as well didn't he and um, and, um hitchhiking and hitchhiking with george yes which is why Paul would pick up hitchhikers well into the 70s. Can you imagine? You know, you're just out there hitchhiking on the road. This car <laughs> pulls over and picks you up, and it's Paul freaking McCartney driving. Right. <laughs> no, I First of all, would you actually believe it's Paul or just somebody that looks like him? And you go, do you know what? You look a lot like Paul. And it'd be, it'd be like, yeah, I get that all the time. That's right. I would like, no way, no way, no way. If George picked you up, he'd be like, don't talk about the Beatles. If he picked you up in the wrong state, he'd be telling you, Paul, that Oklahoma was never like this. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Lonnie, you're catching. You're infectious. It's only the start, folks. Keep tuned. <laughs> well, we're, I'm going to have to put up with both of you the now. I've got the guitar book by Denny Lane. Possibly the weirdest affiliated, but not Beatles book I've got. Huh. What do you mean guitar books? He wrote a book that's all about the history of guitars and then gives you a couple of lessons in there. And it's got all pictures from Wings days. I've read things that he's written like about the history of the guitar, you know, going back to the 12th century or something. Well, yeah, he definitely knows his stuff because the, the book's fascinating with how it goes back because it goes back, like you said, all the way back to like 12th century or whatever and talks about how the guitars changed throughout the years. Yeah. So now we know what his obsession is. Mm. <laughs> we should get him on the show, folks, talking about that. I don't think his uh, current wife would be very amenable to that. We've heard those stories. We have? We'll talk about them after the show. <laughs> Let's move on to one more topic, and then we'll close out for this week. I will leave it up to you guys from fandom. <laughs> Apparently, we're going to talk about the crickets. <laughs> they were a good backing band, the crickets. They were. So, we witnessed the revolution in how fandom is celebrated over the last couple decades, certainly since the turn of 2000, where do we think it's going to go in the future? I would say the biggest change, at least amongst us, amongst the hardcores, the obsessives, is the ability to do things like this podcast, to get out there and actually express your obsessions to the world and have some people listen to you and say, oh yeah, I agree. Well, that's one way. I think with the whole AI thing, it's going to go a different way. People will start coming up with their own versions of whatever it is they can mess with. 
So you're going to be flooded with Ringo stings a day of the life. We're getting that as well. I mean, certainly the last 10 years since the equivalence of the, the Mao AI technology, you know, people have been building any number of new stereo mixes of things, pull out instruments, and they build it around the recording. And some of them are good and some of them are not. I mean, it, it follows the same rule that everything else does, that 90% of everything is crap. Right. There is that great podcast, Jason Krupa, with the, uh, you know, producing the Beatles. That's interesting because he breaks down the songs and they, they look at the different elements of it. And that's something where perhaps if the AI technology that we're seeing being utilized becomes available to more creatives like podcasters, we might see more of that where they'll break down the Beatles songs and look at these different elements of the songs pre stereo that they've only got the basics to and then they might be able to cut those down and break those down and then eventually you'll you'll get really good stereo field mixes of the original first couple of beatles years worth of albums and singles well we've got six more albums that mal technology is going to clean up and put out so they'll they'll be that you, you ask where it's going i think it's eventually going to end up in the universities and you know people will have careers as beatologists. Well, I mean, you know, like I said, I just mentioned our friend Allison, who got her PhD in the Beatles. I mean, that's not what it is. It's a, it's a popular music PhD, but it is at least to a certain extent a Beatles PhD. Right. Also, do you think that they may offer the availability to mix your own Beatles song? In other words, put it out there for individuals. Are we going to get stems is, is your question. But Paul used to do something similar on his website. He had a thing. It was fairly simple. Four faders and you could go up and down on them. But uh, Right. And right. a dozen songs, I think it was. I've still got my mix of uh, Band on the Run-Up on SoundCloud. Ooh. Hmm. <laughs> Hopefully it's a mini Moog mix. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if... I don't know how many years we're talking about. Things seem to happen faster than I expected. The new technology, like an Oculus, where you basically sit in a Beatles session. <laughs> I'm going to play. Ta- I'm going to play tambourine on this while the Beatles work around me, or perhaps I don't know. You can interact even more. Apple just introduced their new version of this, and you know it has a sound quality equivalent to what you get off of the AirPods Pro. You can get full surround, and one of the nice things about it is you can turn the dial to see how interactive you want to be. So you can fully immerse yourself, or you can turn it all the other way, where you are both in the real world and just have augmented reality. That would be a perfect piece of gear for the sort of thing you're talking right. about. You could sit and argue with Paul about a lyric, you know. No, <laughs> no, you can't put that in there. Or actually, those of us who never attended a Beatle concert, you know, put the yeah. 3D goggles on and immerse yourself. And not be able to hear anything. <laughs> Is the video good enough to be able to do that, do you think? Well, they AI it, you know. Oh, well, that's true as well. <laughs> You can do the Peter Jackson on the on the crowd noise and eliminate it. Well, yeah. <laughs> or turn it down. Well, I mean, we see what they did with Hollywood Bowl. Mm. Yeah, something similar to that. If that's going to happen, the first thing that's going to happen, and, and it's something else that we have mentioned before in the past, is the ability to be on the rooftop. Ooh, yes. You know, you, in the VR world, you can be sitting there right next to Yoko and Chris O'Dell. Well, that should be fun. (laughs) Move over, Yoko. (laughs) Yoko's not going to talk to you. I didn't see the proper guard railing on that roof. (laughs) That's the Ruddles. (laughs) Kick somebody off. Who knows where it's going to go? I'm going to turn my dining room into the rooftop. Is this a store? No, this is a world. (laughs) (laughs) As far as my final thoughts for this show... Uh, We've kind of reached and passed peak Beatles, but I don't think it's really dropping off nearly as fast as it might have. I mean, you look at Elvis fandom, Elvis fandom pretty quickly dropped off as as people started dying off. If you immerse yourself in that world, it's still going. I mean, there are people who are still collecting and still... uh... The value of the collectibles has plummeted. 
whereas the Beatles stuff more or less keeps its value pretty well. And I mean, you know, we'll have to wait another decade to see, but I, I don't see the market being flooded. You know, even butchers, there are lots and lots of butchers out there, certainly second state butchers, but those haven't fallen off in oh, price. True, true. And Lonnie owns a first state. I'm going to have to sell it so I can visit Marvin. <laughs> Marv here soon. <laughs> How about a tidy up? Tidy up, Marv. <laughs> All right, final thoughts, gentlemen. It's endless. Who knows where it's going to go next? And I welcome to the world of tomorrow. <laughs> That's exactly. Right. We have a lot to talk about, and in the fandom, it exists within our network. It'd be interesting to see what others think of us outside our network. We continue to sustain it all we can do and we are doing our part thank you gentlemen for joining us this week and thank you for joining me on a more permanent basis starting next week my pleasure welcome you guys all right so me and somebody will be back we'll we'll figure that out as soon as we turn off this recording we're gonna roll the dice talk to y'all soon be safe folks take care Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Welcome this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm Lonnie Pena. And I'm John Stone. And I'm Martin Quibell. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.